0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash GPS. NetSuite.com slash GPS.
1: This is GPS, the Global Public Square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, the impeachment inquiry. I want no quid pro quo! If Trump is impeached, he will only be the third president in history to meet that fate after Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. I'm profoundly sorry. This is then a historic moment. So, how do historians look at it? I'll talk to Doris Kearns Goodwin, Rick Perlstein, and David Rubenstein. Then, Donald Trump claims we are winning the trade war with China. Thanks to my tariffs. We're taking in billions and billions of dollars from a country that never gave us 10 cents, China. But we are losing the more important battle, the education race against Asia in general. What can we learn from the East about education? I'll bring you the answers. And why did this ship end up crashing into rocks in broad daylight? Why was this Oscar announcement so screwed up? Tim Harford, the undercover economist, has been looking at how things can go very wrong very quickly. And he'll tell us how we can avoid catastrophe. But first, here's my take. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. It's a secular celebration of America, and as an immigrant, I feel I have much to be grateful for. Plus, I'm an optimist who tends to see the story of this country as one of making progress over the long run. Lately, it's been tough to maintain that sunny outlook. America's greatest asset, its constitutional republic and its democratic character, seem to be in danger of breakdown. Listen to the language of the president. Our radical Democrat opponents are driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage. They want to destroy you, and they want to destroy our country as we know it. Words like treason and coup are now casually tossed around in normal political discourse. Some had imagined that the impeachment inquiry might provide evidence and facts that would cut through the spin and fantasies, but in fact, the opposite has happened. Can America survive through such poisonous times? Well... In the past, it has. It has survived the battles between slave owners and abolitionists, the first Red Scare and McCarthyism, Vietnam and Watergate. Could this time be different? Alas, yes, says Yoni Applebaum in a thought-provoking essay in The Atlantic titled How America Ends. Applebaum argues that the United States is undergoing a transition perhaps no rich and stable democracy has ever experienced. Its historically dominant group is on its way to becoming a political minority and its minority groups are asserting their co-equal rights and interests. He acknowledges that there have been smaller versions of this transition before, but those moments have been wrenching, often stretching America to the breaking point. It took a civil war to end slavery and then almost 100 years of struggle to end Jim Crow. The United States passed the Chinese Exclusion Act and interned 120,000 Japanese Americans before opening its gates to immigrants from all over the world. Coupled with demographics is one more worrying trend that threatens America's constitutional character, the ever-expanding power of the presidency. Whatever you think of the charges against Donald Trump on Russia or Ukraine, his position of resolute non-cooperation with Congress in the impeachment inquiry should trouble you deeply. If Congress cannot exercise its core constitutional oversight capacity, the presidency will have become an elected dictatorship. We've been going down this road for a while. Arthur Schlesinger wrote about the imperial presidency in 1973. The legislation and culture after Watergate led many to believe that matters were under control. In fact, as Schlesinger noted in a 2004 reissue of his book, in recent years the presidency has become stronger than ever. The Fuhrer after 9-11 proved to be the gateway for an out-of-control executive branch. The president gained the ability to snoop on private Americans, use military force at whim, torture prisoners, and detain people indefinitely. The president of the United States can now order the execution of American citizens who are deemed, by him, to be terrorists without due process. Attorney General Bill Barr believes, despite all this history, that the great problem in America is the presidency is too weak. He has enabled a policy of stonewalling and silence in which top administration officials behave almost as if Congress does not exist. People often ask what the founders would think of America today. It seems to me that the greatest shock to them would be the incredible growth of presidential power. Profound demographic change fierce political backlash, and a presidency that refuses to be checked. My optimism is wearing thin this Thanksgiving. For more, go to CNN.com slash and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Extraordinary is an overused word in the modern vernacular, but I don't think it's hyperbole to say we are living in extraordinary times in the United States. And I often wonder how historians 20 or 30 or 50 years from now will view this moment. Well, that's unknowable for now, but what is knowable is how historians are looking at it. As it happens, joining me are Doris Kearns Goodwin, a foremost historian of the American presidency. Her latest book is Leadership in Turbulent Times, She has a masterclass available on presidential history and leadership, available on masterclass.com. Rick Perlstein is a historian of the American conservative movement, and in particular, a chronicler of the presidency and resignation of Richard Nixon. And you may know David Rubenstein as a billionaire businessman. He is the co-founder of the Carlyle Group. But one of his great passions is American history. And he's just published a book called The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. Before we begin, uh, David, I want you to explain what your book is and how it's really came out of an act of educating American congressmen about the country's history.
2: I have a concern that people don't know as much about our history as they should. Recently, in a survey, three-quarters of Americans could not name the three branches of government, and only one-third could name even one branch of government. So it's a sad situation. We don't teach history as much as we used to, or civics. And members of Congress are in the same category. They know more than the average citizen— But they should know more than probably they do, and they want to know more. So I started a series about six years ago at the Library of Congress to interview our great historians like Doris Kearns Goodwin in front of members of Congress. Now I've done about 50 of them, and I've taken about 18 of them, put them in a book, uh, distilled the the interviews uh, a bit, edited them a little bit. And it's really designed to give people a look at American history through the eyes of the greatest historians we have, talking about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, FDR, and so
1: forth. Rick Poratine. Let's get to the substance. Um, you wrote this great book about the uh, the end of the Nixon presidency, mm-hmm. Invisible Bridge. And you point out, you know, when we think about the impeachment hearings, there was a lot more going on with Nixon than just the That's impeachment right. hearings. Describe the, the, you know, the kind of breadth of the investigation.
3: Well, by the time Nixon resigned, uh, what the public referred to when they said Watergate was this panoply of sins that really went back the beginning of his presidency. It was 1969 when he uh, did his first phone tappings of his own staff because he was t- so terrified of, about leaks. You know, in 1970, one of the things in the investigation in 1973 found out was that he approved a memo uh, recommending break-ins of his opponents, right? He unapproved it, but obviously there were break-ins of his opponents. Uh, Watergate, the burglary, was followed by payoffs with secret funds to the burglars, but even as they were investigating all this, they would turn over rocks and turn over rocks and turn over rocks, and each re- rock would reveal, you know, another thing. You know, Nixon using public funds for his private residences,
1: and all this was uh, was discovered through not just one impeachment uh, inquiry, right?
3: It was, of course, the media and Seymour Hirsch and 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 Woodward and Bernstein, but it was also in 1973 the Senate voted. Uh, with only two votes in opposition, to have a uh, special committee that would investigate Nixon and have public televised hearings. And they were galvanizing. And one of the reasons only two people voted against it was they were approved at a time when no one could have imagined that the White House was
1: involved. You lived through that period, and and, uh, what what is your sense when you look at that impeachment and this one? What are the differences? What are the similarities?
4: Well, I think, you know, the main difference when you think about it is that when those impeachment hearings started, only 19% of the country thought he should be impeached. And then you watch that process unfold... And they educated public sentiment, both the events and the hearings and the discoveries. By the end, 57 percent thought he should be impeached. And then that great moment that you know so well about, you both do, when finally the day before he resigns, um, Barry Goldwater and a couple other Republicans come to tell him what the situation is. And he's wondering, can I get 34? Maybe I'll get 20. Right. And Goldwater says, there's only four, and I'm not one of them. Right. right? And this it's was an incredible moment. So it
3: wasn't this small compartmentalized thing. Now they're going after this one bad thing he did, not this is how Trump does bad things.
2: But the key at that time, I think, was that the Republicans decided in the House Judiciary Committee to vote in favor of an impeachment uh, article. Right. and right. Right now, it seems as if it's very split by party lines. So uh, Nixon was unable to hold the Republican Party in the House and ultimately un- unable to do so in the, in the Senate. Today, it appears that the president is able to hold his Republican Party. And And which
4: shows that the big challenge, I think, is that they have to educate public sentiment about what is an abuse of power, what does it mean to violate the rule of law, what is bribery, what is an impeachable offense, why are we impeaching him now versus waiting for the election. All those kinds of public – that's what Lincoln said, with public sentiment, anything is possible, without it nothing is. And And that country was educated under Nixon and it came out fine in the end. Ford said, our national nightmare is over, and there was a consensus in the country.
1: Why is that happening? Presumably, the reason the Republicans are doing this is because they recognize that Trump has the the base of the party, has the entire party with him, that if they were to break with Trump, they would lose their primaries, they would be primaried, they would lose election. So- is it that the country is so much more polarized that there's simply no prospect of? It? I
3: think it's that 50 50 polarization country? is a very poor metaphor. You hear it all the time. Uh, the Democratic Party, you know, loves bipartisanship. You know, we nominate a guy. I'm going to say we. I'm sorry, uh, maybe a little too partisan. Who says there is no red America? There is no blue America? Or a guy in 1988 who says this election is not about ideology; it's about competence. I- but in these four books I've written, I'm writing about the surrender of a party to almost authoritarianism, turn by turn by turn by turn. I can tell that story if you're interested. But the fact is we're at a point now uh, at, at which basically the things that would get a Republican... There was something called the John Birch Society. You guys will all remember that. i were I'm crazy afraid we're old enough to remember right? that. And they said, you know, Eisenhower is a conscious agent of the communist conspiracy. Back in the early 60s, you had to uh, disavow the John Birch Society in order to be taken seriously in the party. Now, people are saying things like that, the idea that Ukraine uh, sabotaged the election in the leadership of the Republican Party.
2: The Congress is a pretty good barometer of the American people. If the American people were dead set against President Trump, then the Congress would reflect that. Right now, the Republican Party is very intensely in favor of supporting him. And until that changes, I don't think you're going to see Republican votes go against him. Now, if that changes, that'd be different. But right now, I think... President Trump has a much greater hold on the party than Nixon did in a comparable period of time. But don't you think it's or, also yeah. the,
4: the media is so different? I mean, you're hearing two different narratives now. When you saw the hearings last week, there was one narrative on MSNBC of these professional people who had come forward to tell the truth and had risked their reputations and, and created fact-based evidence. And then you listen to the other channels, um, maybe perhaps Fox, and you'll hear a totally different narrative. So it's much harder to bring a consensus in the country and the Congress, when we've got that split in the cable uh, networks right sorry. now. The Congress um, no, isn't
3: a uh, reflection because 10 percent of the Congress uh, can, you know, represents, you know, 75 percent, 75 percent of the Congress can represent 10 percent of the public.
1: Stay with me when we come back. I'll ask the panel what history tells us about the other side of the aisle, the Democrats and their multitude of presidential wannabes. And we are back with Doris Kearns Goodwin, Rick Perlstein, and David Rubinstein. You're a Democrat. Um, you I mean, in-
2: I'm registered as an independent. Yeah,
1: but you worked for I Jimmy work Carter. for Jimmy Carter. So I want to ask you, looking at it as a historian, when you look at the Democratic primary, the thing I'm struck by is when the Democrats nominate somebody who is a kind of fresh face from the outside, who kind of captures the imagination of the country, mm-hmm. Carter, Clinton, Obama, they win. That's correct. When they nominate the the kind of stalwart standard bearer of the party, Mondale, Kerry, Biden, they don't do so well. Respond to that pattern.
2: Well, history is good to know, because if you look at history, it tells you what what likely will happen in the future. So if you look at history here, it looks as if a fresh face is more likely to win a general election. But the party is obviously very, I'd say, pleased with some of the people who've been around for a while. Biden is clearly the front-runner, I would say, right now. So it's hard to know. And remember, when people vote, they don't look at history patterns as much as what they feel today. So I can't say it's easy to pick who's going to be the nominee. Uh, There are many candidates there. Uh, Right now, uh, four years ago, you wouldn't have predicted probably that President Trump would become president. Um, It's just too early to say. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you go back the last ten presidential elections, a year in advance of that election, I don't think you would have predicted the person who would have won each of those elections. You wouldn't have predicted Barack Obama a year in advance. President Trump a year in advance. Because they were all trailing in the polls. Well, they were trailing then. And uh, Barack Obama, when he got the nomination, he was trailing behind Hillary Clinton the first time, way behind before the Iowa caucus actually happened. And then he obviously won the Iowa caucus and went on to to win the nomination. My point is, a year in advance is too early to say.
1: When you look at the primaries, uh, people say so many people... Bloomberg. coming I in mean, is this more chaotic? Is this what does it look like?
4: I mean, the terrible thing I'll have to admit every now and then when I look at the craziness of the primaries, I wish we could go back to the old convention system. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. We wouldn't start the election until the summer. The conventions would choose somebody. Then in September, a Labor Day it would begin. It would be over in November and we'd have lives in between all these elections. Of course, it was Teddy Roosevelt who wanted the primary system in order to beat Taft in 1912. And we were talking about this last night. The New York Times printed an editorial because the campaign between Teddy and Taft, the first primary system, was so awful that the New York Times said, if this is the first presidential primary as an experiment, we hope it's the last. This is embarrassing. Foreigners must be laughing at us. This is not a rational procedure. It's a mob. There is a problem with the way the primary system is set up. Of course, we're not going to go back. It's democratic to have more people vote. But how are we judging the candidates who are in these primaries? How are they do in a debate? Who zings who? That's nuts. They're not going to be doing that when they're president. Mm. How much have they? got a public opinion poll at that moment. How much money have they raised? We should be looking at what kind of leaders they've been in the past. They've all come from somewhere. Governors, mayors, senators, congressmen. We don't just need a magazine article. We should be talking constantly. How, what kind of team do they have around them? Do they share credit? Do they shoulder blame? Um, do they have humility? Do they have empathy? Do they have resilience? Can they, are they accessible? All of these, do they, what's their ambition like? We should know these things. It's what we should be asking them in the debates. You know, have you failed and how have you done that? One question was asked, but I'd love to see those leadership things as an index for judging them.
1: Rick, let me ask you about about the question of um, how to win for mm. a Democrat. So there are essentially two theories, it seems right. to me. One is you need to bring out the base, all those people who voted for Obama but didn't vote for Hillary. The other is... You need to get to all those persuadables in the middle in in these these states. It feels like those are two somewhat different. Obviously, ideally you do both. But Elizabeth Warren brings out the base. Joe Biden reaches those people in the middle. Right. What do you think? What does history tell you is the way to go? Well, I think
3: the answer is political science, actually, which is very clear that there are very very few people who are persuadable. We have people that are called independents, but we actually when we actually kind of drill down and say what do these independents actually believe? How do they vote? they tend either to vote always for one party and call themselves independent because it sounds more independent, which is okay. Sure. <laughs> I'm not uh, present company Cheezing. excluded. Or maybe they, they say they're not Democrats because they're to the left of the Democrats. Or they
2: say they're not Republicans because they're libertarians. It's not a perfect process, but it's a process that I think is the envy of the world in some respects. We actually have a lot of votes a lot of primaries, a lot of caucuses, and I think a lot of people around the world would like to have a system where they actually get to vote and vote many different times. So I don't think it's a perfect system. I, I, all of us could invent a better system, but for right now, I think it's as good a system as I think we can possibly get.
1: All right, let me ask you, um, as a billionaire, what do you think of Elizabeth Warren's uh, desire to tax the hell out of you?
2: Well... I, I'm, I don't make the laws. Whatever the laws are, I'm going to comply with. So I pay whatever taxes I'm supposed to pay, and I pay a lot of taxes, and I'm happy to do so as an American who came from very modest circumstances. My parents didn't graduate from high school or college, and I got lucky in business world, so I'm happy to pay the taxes that the, the law requires me to pay. If the Ways and Means Committee, which initiates legislation, and this Finance Committee uh, goes along with it and they pass a bill, I'll comply with it. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot of support for what she's doing right now, but if the law is the law, I'll comply
1: with it, of course. All right, on that note of, uh, of uh, fealty to our nation's laws, thank you all for a very, very interesting conversation. Next on GPS, many on Wall Street would have you believe that Elizabeth Warren is cut from the same cloth as Karl Marx. She's not, of course, but in a moment I will introduce you to a politician whose platform would pull his nation towards something that can fairly be described as socialism. It's not Bernie Sanders. Stay with us and find out. Now for our What in the World segment. Little has terrified the titans of Wall Street more in recent years than the prospect of an Elizabeth Warren presidency. They say she vilifies the rich, and they know she plans to levy taxes on their wealth. They worry that she would alter America's free market. For all the fears about her, and some are legitimate, Warren is not really a socialist, not in the sense the word is usually used. But there is a politician facing national elections who is a self-described socialist. And I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders. This one is across the pond. It's Jeremy Corbyn, whose Labour Party has released a manifesto for Britain's general elections later this month that marks the party's biggest shift to the left in a generation. A Labour government would drive taxes up on corporations and the rich to pay for a significant increase in day-to-day public spending. Public investment as a proportion of the economy would rise from 2.6 percent to 4.5 percent, on par with Sweden's. Perhaps most radical of all, Corbyn wants to go on a nationalization drive. He would reverse decades of privatization began by Margaret Thatcher and bring the railways, water, energy supplies and the Royal Mail under direct government ownership and control. Now, the record of government-run industries has been pretty bad in most countries, including Britain, where it was tried for decades after 1945. But Corbyn wants to bring part of the British telecoms giant, BT, under public ownership so that his government could roll out free, high-speed broadband for every citizen, he says. Boris Johnson called this a, quote, crazed communist scheme. Now, keep in mind that these are the kinds of promises that often play well with many voters. However, Labour is polling behind Johnson's Conservative Party. Still, British industry leaders are panicking. One telecoms executive told the FT that Corbyn's internet plan, which was announced two weeks ago, was, quote, lunacy, unquote. The paper reports that others have already started freezing investment in broadband networks until after the election. They have a reason to be concerned. The FT reports that companies would likely be compensated for their assets at far below market rates. There's more. Labor is planning a national investment bank, a four-day work week, and taking action toward ending the gender pay gap by 2030. If fully implemented, Labor's plans could be fairly described as democratic socialism. Last month, Boris Johnson wrote in The Telegraph that Corbyn's Labour Party was going after the wealthy the way Stalin persecuted the kulaks, a tasteless and wildly inappropriate analogy. But in September, Katie Martin of the FT wrote that something in Congress seemed to be happening. Markets appeared to be warming to the idea of a Labour government. That's because there is something that Corbyn has to offer business. He has ruled out a no-deal Brexit and said he would offer voters a second referendum. Think of the consequences of Boris Johnson's hard Brexit. According to The Economist, estimates suggest that it would shrink British incomes by 6% in the long run a no-deal Brexit would be an even bigger catastrophe with a higher economic toll and the added chance of food and medicine shortages. If one of these two leading parties ends up forming the next government, a fair assumption, then the choice appears to be between a government that would lurch Britain to the hard left or one that will deliver a hard Brexit. Here's hoping that American voters will have a better choice in 2020. Next on GPS, speaking of 2020, Democratic presidential candidates continue to lay out their plans for fixing American education. But my next guest says we should actually look across the Pacific for solutions. Teru Clavel on what the U.S. can learn from Asian education when we come back. Educators around the world have been waiting with bated breath for three years and they will be able to exhale on Tuesday. That's when the latest round of PISA scores come out. Those are the global tests of 15-year-olds conducted by the OECD. They tell countries where their kids rank against others. And Asian nations have consistently outranked the United States in secondary education, math, science, and reading. So what is the East's special sauce? What can we learn from nations that consistently excel in education? Well, Teru Clavel knows firsthand. She's an American, but when work brought her family to Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Shanghai, she put the kids in local public schools there. Now they're back in New York, and Teru has written a terrific book about what she learned from watching her kids learn. The book is called World Class, One Mother's Journey Halfway Around the Globe in Search of the Best Education for Her Children. Pleasure to have you on.
0: Thank you so much, Harid.
1: Why is it that these schools and you know, these are public schools in Hong Kong and Shanghai, why are they teaching so well?
0: I say the level of learning expectation is so much higher. Everybody has a can-do mindset. And yes, learning is challenging. But through overcoming those challenges, you gain that resiliency and the motivation to continue to learn and push yourself. So that, was, that that's a very, very big difference.
1: You also talk about a really important thing. Again, these are public schools, and what, you came back to the states, and you were so struck by the wide disparities in funding. Um, but you know, the, the best um, suburban schools might do very well, but the places where the poorest kids are, which need. More attention actually get less funding here because, of course, funding is for schools is through property taxes. So, mm-hmm. and you don't have to see any of that in in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Japan. All teachers were paid the same. They all had the same resources.
0: They really do everything they can to fight any kind of inequity. So there are examples where we talk about in the United States. We want the best teachers, the most experienced teachers, to go to those schools that may be weaker or underperforming, but in effect, it, it's usually the regressive, the, the, the opposite, opposite. Yeah. Yeah. where, well, I have tenure, I'm going to teach fifth grade in this school for the next 10 or 20 years. Um, where I can say one example is in Japan, um, when we were in Tokyo, for example, teachers are moved around within the district on every two to, every two to three years, basically. So you could go back to school and a teacher's not there and she was moved to another teacher. So you're not going to have, this is a good school in the district. This is the bad school because the teachers are constantly moving around. Um, And there are financial transfers to make sure that the inequity doesn't exist. In the United States, on average, only 10% of a school's budget comes from the federal government. So it's really up to districts and states to stem that inequity. And another thing that they do really well in Shanghai, for example, is they have kind of sister programs, so the higher-performing schools take on a lesser-performing school and take over its management to elevate it.
1: You also talk about the, the respect that teachers had in these societies. Now, that's something the government, I suppose, can't really do. though The teachers could be paid more, which I would think is one of the tragedies in America. We, we think we pay teachers well. We don't. We pay them very badly. Yes. Um, what, what could one do about that? Because there really is that dis- difference, I think.
0: So that reverence for teachers is really something that really smacks you kind of in the face when you when you're in Shanghai and in Japan. And on average, again, in Japan, for example, there are 200,000 applicants for 38,000 spots to become teachers. Uh, and it's as difficult to pass the bar, if not more difficult, in Japan to become a teacher. So the credentialing, the licensing, is really really difficult, and. What you also see is the teachers will do anything to help this next generation of students. So I tell many stories in the book where it would be 7 p.m. at night, and whenever the house phone rang, we knew it was a teacher who's teaching from, who was actually, I would just say, calling from the teacher collaboration room that all the teachers went to because so much of their time isn't spent necessarily in the classroom, but it's working together, collaborating professional development uh, and lesson planning. And in the United States, teachers spend 27 hours a week on average in the classroom, whereas the average for OECD nations is 19 hours. So that's something that we have to address as well.
1: So they're, t- they're teaching too much and they're not spending enough time getting professionally enriched and developed. And
0: Yes, and the other thing that happens both in Shanghai and in Japan is you have to be re-credentialed every five to ten years, and that requires hours and hours of professional development, observations, even medical tests. So it, it's like becoming a doctor or a lawyer really, where you can't just pass an exam once, you have to keep up your professional development.
1: Terry Cleveland, pleasure to have you on.
0: Thank you so very much.
1: Next on GPS, bad stuff happens to good people, it's just a fact of life. But how can we do our best to avoid the pitfalls? Tim Harford, the undercover economist, has done the digging, and he has the answers. Back in a moment. I'm hoping our viewers in the United States don't have any cautionary tales to share after Thanksgiving dinner. No fights with crazy uncles, no turkeys burned to a crisp, no busted belt buckles from eating too much food. But life is filled with cautionary tales. Events that were expected to go one way and then swiftly go awry. Why does this happen? How do nuclear power plant accidents happen amidst so many safeguards? And how did this oil tanker end up in broad daylight on rocks its officers knew were there? My next guest tells these stories and more in a new podcast. Tim Harford is known as the undercover economist. He's an author, a columnist for the FT, and his new podcast is called, simply enough, Cautionary Tales. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. So I'm fascinated
5: by the oil tanker one, because what you describe is... um, Why don't you describe what happens? It was 1967. The oil tanker was one of the largest ships in the world, a great ship. And its captain took her between the Scilly Isles and the coast of Cornwall. So this is just off the southwest tip of Great Britain. There's about 10 miles to get through, but it is narrow for an oil tanker. And as the captain took the ship along this course... Little by little, small pieces of information came to light that should have made him think, oh, hang on, we need to go a much safer route. Some fishing boats appeared. There was a small navigational error. They realised the, the tanker wasn't quite where they thought. But rather than stop and go around, they, he kept thinking, oh, well, I can make it, I can make it, I can make it, and then there was one small final error and there was no margin left, and the ship went onto the rocks, and it was was an ecological disaster and also the largest insurance claim uh, in history up to to that point.
1: And to you, the lesson you draw is very interesting, that once you set a course, um, often what people do is uh, little bits of information that disconfirm your your initial strategy, plan, analysis, never derail it. You just don't let it Get into your head
5: that way. Yes, I mean accident experts call this plan continuation bias, and we, you see it with uh, airline pilots. You see it in the operating theatre. You see it. I see it in my own life. You know, I'm trying to make some complicated set of pickups, and all the children for their different clubs, and and information comes in that should make me think, "Hang on, this is impossible. Yeah, I need yeah. to call in some help. I need to change the plan," and I don't. And you see it in politics as well. I mean, the the. the The Brexit seems the most, yeah. Yes, as as, as a Brit, Brexit, it seems to be behind everything at the moment. But uh, we had our previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, had a plan to deliver Brexit. And it it just became clearer and clearer and clearer that that plan... Wasn't going to work, and yet she found it completely unable to. She found herself completely unable to change what she was doing, and it felt I, I, just like that oil tanker.
1: I think of the Iraq War that way. That you know, there was this. The, the plan was set in motion, and then all kinds of information comes, and in. the inspectors come back and say, "Well, actually, we don't find um, weapons of mass destruction." The Turks come back and say, "You can't go through our country." So what was planned as a two-front
5: invasion, now you have one front that you can't do it but The plan continues yeah, yeah I mean and you, some of these things are absolutely catastrophic, but it 's a very simple piece of human nature if the new information is just dripping in slowly it's very hard to have the presence of mind, especially when you 're under pressure to say hang on maybe we need to rethink this from scratch
1: um, you you will have another episode which is uh, which is about
5: Galileo 's rule explain what Galileo 's rule is so Galileo the great astronomer, uh, in his final book tells a story about weirdly enough storing columns these big marble columns that how do you store them in the correct way and he tells a story about how uh, a storage mechanism that was supposed to keep the columns safe would break them time after time they would snap in storage and the point here is often when we introduce safety systems we're also introducing complexity we're introducing a new way for things to fail And my favorite example, not a tragic one, just a slightly amusing one is, uh, you remember when they gave the Oscar to the wrong movie, they gave the Oscar to La La Land rather than to Moonlight. How did that happen? Basically because as a safety measure, they had a set of duplicate envelopes. They had two copies of every envelope with every award card and that seemed like a sensible way of with, being safe with every possible movie every movie nominated. No, it was or? just there were two. There were two for best actress. There were two for best picture. There were two. They were the same. But it was if, if we lose one, if we lose the best actress nomination, which, by, by the way, says Emma Stone, La La Land, which is the thing that caused the problem. If we lose uh, the card with the best actress prize on, we have another card. We have another envelope. But that meant that when Emma Stone won Best Actress for her role in La La Land, somebody had to get rid of the duplicate envelope. And they they didn't. And that duplicate envelope ended up in the hands of Warren Beatty. And that's what caused the problem. So if you never had the safety system, if you only had one copy of these envelopes, you would never have had the problem. And funnily enough, They've decided the Oscars, have, they've decided we're going to fix this problem. Now we're going to have three sets of envelopes. <laughs> I wonder how that's going to work out. Um,
1: is there a larger overall point to the, to the podcast or a kind of mo- a lesson?
5: Well, stories of disaster, stories of mistakes are interesting. They're memorable. So I like these stories. But the, there's always a lesson to learn from mistakes. I would rather learn lessons from other people's mistakes and learn lessons from my own mistakes. So that's that's what I'm trying to do.
1: That is is the goal. uh, Listen to this podcast so you can learn from other people's mistakes. Absolutely. Tim Harford, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. And we will be back. Tomorrow, the Supreme Court is set to review its first case in around a decade that is centered around the right to bear arms. That brings me to my question this week. According to an August poll from Quinnipiac, Which of the following gun policies is supported by over 50% of American voters? Universal background checks, red flag laws, requiring a license to purchase a gun, banning assault weapons. Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is David Rubenstein's The American Story. As you heard earlier, Rubenstein has interviewed some of America's greatest historians and put the conversations together in this book, it is superbly done, making for a rich, wide ranging discussion of American history, but because of the format, a very engaging one that is very easy to read and reread. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is all of the above. In fact, all these policy proposals have support from between 60 and 93 percent of American voters. Over 90 percent of Americans support requiring background checks for all gun buyers including nearly 90% of Republicans and 93% of gun owners, 80% support a red flag law allowing judges to revoke guns from individuals deemed at risk, and 82% are in favor of requiring individuals to obtain a license before owning a gun. And this support is not new. Quinnipiac's report suggests that the majority of Americans have favored decisive policy changes for several years. So why has progress been so slow? The answer can be reduced to the tyranny of the minority as congressional Republicans vote in line with the interests of the few rather than the many. But it's worth noting that Americans have not gone unheard. Earlier this year, two major retailers cracked down on accessibility to weapons and ammunition, and courts from California to Massachusetts have upheld assault weapons bans. Reaching a resolution on effective gun policies might prove to be one of the greatest challenges of this era in American history. It's a responsibility that rests both with the private and the public sphere. It'll be our collective effort that lands us on the right side of history. Thanks to all of you for being part of our program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.